0: Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord this morning. The psalmist said he was glad when people said to him, let's go to the house of the Lord. And I certainly hope that's why we're here. I hope that's our attitude. We're glad to be here. So this morning's sermon has been brewing for four or five months. Maybe that's not a good thing. But it's been something that's been on the back burner and I pulled it to the front burner here in the last few weeks. And I really wrestled with how to parse out what I wanted to say or what I wished to say. I hope I'm understood when I'm done. And I really struggled to come up with a title for this message. So now you're really wondering, where in the world's he going? In fact, I probably scratched out four titles before I settled on one. I'm still not sure I like it, but this is what we're going with. Turn with me to Luke seven. <clears throat> While you're uh, turning to that, I'm going to uh, just tell you a little story of um, of the of an experience I had that a few months ago, four or five months ago, that that got me to thinking about this particular topic and why I would like to speak on it this morning. So this spring. Um, Darl and I attended the wedding of a nephew and as weddings and funerals tend to go you you see people, especially us we don't live in the hub anymore and so when we go to Lancaster County um, there are times that in, in, in events like this that you see people you haven't seen and in our case something like 30 years so 30 years has elapsed you haven't seen these people and suddenly they're there And uh, it's a telling event. Um, You can, um, we're all older, we're all 30 years older, so sometimes there's even a recognition problem there a little bit. But So you have that you're dealing with. But at this wedding, as all events like this will tend to be, um, generally speaking, you will see a wide variety of people. You, You will see people from 30 years past, that from just appearance, we're just going on appearance now, that's it, just appearance, you would say these people appear to have stayed on a good path. We're, we're just simply going by appearance. That's all we have to go with. We haven't seen, we haven't interacted with these people for 30 years. We don't know. But from, from appearance, we, we deduct that the path that they're on seems to be a good one. But there's the, there's the counterpoint. There are people that show up there that you haven't seen for 30 years, and you can say from all appearances, the path that these people seem to have chosen has not been a good one. And again, that's all we're going on. We're going going on on appearance. Or at least they're on a very different path than they were 30 years before. This particular wedding was held at a church that I had never heard of before. It was a recently built church, and it was very accommodating for this event, and so it was rented and used. And a person that knew much more about this church than I did said, you realize this was at one time a Mennonite church? I had not realized that. I hadn't done that. This particular church that we were at, um, from all appearances, again, we're, we're going strictly on appearance, from all appearance, at some point, they apparently came to a place where they were uh, did not want to anymore identify um, as a Mennonite church, and so they changed their name and any trace of traditional Mennonite markers that we think of were completely gone but that's that 's where we were after the reception there, um, some of my friends from 30 years before that I haven't seen in many, many years. We're sitting around a table there, and we got to talking about our observations of the day. And there was some sentiment there in that discussion that Christian culture, and maybe we'll even pull that in a little closer, Mennonite culture and its inevitable traditions and practices tend to bog people down And hinder a true Christian experience. And there would be some scripture in in the Bible that would support that hypothesis. There would be. But is that true? And if it is, then what is the solution to that problem? There's another comment made by another person there in that circle that made the observation, and he was right, that many of us have grown up in sheltered and safe Christian environments, and we end up, for the most part, and he was getting pretty broad brush with his observation, but he said in in his observation and his observation and experience, many of us are not what we appear. All we're worried about is looking good, and many of us have serious problems. That was his... That was his take on things. That's, that's what he, he shared that day. There was another person in that group that had another question for which there didn't seem to be an answer. And this person said, well, let's think of it from, an, from another angle. They said, we, we, we have seen a wide array of people here the, today. And, and we, have, we have made conclusions based on sheer observation. That's all we have to go on here today. Now, are we supposed to assume that the, the folks that we knew 30 years ago that seemed to be on a good path, as far as we could tell anyway, again, we were just going on, on pure appearance, but now 30 years later, they show up with maybe uh, an ear stud or maybe the, the lady is scantily clad in a very immodest miniskirt or maybe there's a tattoo. Are we supposed to assume that these people are doing well spiritually? Are we just supposed to make that assumption? And the counterpoint is, are we supposed to make the assumption that the people that are pretty much we can pick up where we left them 30 years ago, not much has changed, should we assume from that observation that they're hypocrites? Is that how we're supposed to process this? Nobody had an answer for that question. Nobody wanted to, to, to dip their toe into that one. But that's where these thoughts have, have started for me. And these are the, the experiences and musings of the last months for me that have brought me to this point where I would like to explore this with you this morning. Broadly speaking, how do I really love Jesus and have a meaningful relationship with him? And how can Clea know by looking at me that that's the case? That's question number one. The second question is, specifically speaking, is our Christian slash Mennonite slash Anabaptist culture a hindrance to truly having a relationship with Jesus that is real and meaningful? Is that true? If that is true, we have a serious problem. And I want to explore these two questions with you this morning. So you're at Luke 7 now. We're going to read a parable. No, it's not a parable. It's actually an account. There's a parable in the account, but we're going to read this account. We're going to start at verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him, this is Jesus, that he would eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, Which, When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs for head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet... Would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for he is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee, and he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed owned five hundred pence, the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman, and he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in, Hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they who sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have finished reading your word here this morning and we wish to explore this subject, Lord, I pray you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us. May anything I say here this morning be truly of you. And if there's something that's not of you, let it drop to the ground before it is said. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so looking at this story here a little bit, we have a background here that we didn't read, but I'll just briefly go over it. We had some differences of feelings between the Pharisees and the general population regarding John the Baptist. The one had embraced his teachings, the others had not. The Pharisees had rejected largely the teaching of John the Baptist because he was just a little too different. Jesus knew that. And he gave a little he gave a little story. He said, You're just like children in the marketplace that somebody wants to play funeral. And the other one was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to play funeral. And then they'll say, well, let's play wedding. No, we're not going to do that either. And you can't get along. And he said, it's much the same here with John the Baptist and with me. He said, John the Baptist came as an eccentric. And you said, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with John the Baptist. He's too weird. He said, I've come unto you, and I'm willing to sit down with publicans and sinners, and you say, no, this guy is an evil man, and he's a wine-bibber. We're not going to have anything to do with him either. And he made a, a statement. He said, wisdom is justified of her children. And in other words, what he was saying there is, time will tell. Time will tell who is right here. And there's a lot we could talk about there, but for the sake of time, we're not going to. We're going to launch into this reading that we have here and, and parse this out a little bit. So I have three points, the people, the parable, and the point, okay? And let's, let's talk about this. So who was Simon? Simon, as we know, was a Pharisee as uh, for an identity. And this, in our minds, what we know of Pharisees calls initial suspicion and question just due to his identification. Immediately when we read this story, our hackles go up, as they say. We're like, mm, Simon, Pharisee, not good person. But in his day, he probably had a good social standing. He probably lived a good, upright life. His motive for inviting Jesus is largely unknown, but it could have been good. We don't know that, but it could have been, or it, could, it may not have been. He obviously was a man of a sufficient means to entertain guests. He had a number of guests that day from the reading. Why did he invite Jesus? As I said, we don't know. Was his motive pure? Did he feel like he needed a little save a little face for the Pharisees? Uh, you know, after this little discussion here that had just happened before, did he feel like, hey, you know what, just for the sake of my sect, I'll have Jesus over for dinner. At least we'll do that. Maybe that was his... We don't know that. But that's what he did that day. And uh, we get a bit of an insight into his thoughts about Jesus by what goes through his mind as Jesus is there. Um, it seems like when he observed Jesus interacting with that woman, it seems like in his mind he's saying, I knew it. I knew Jesus probably isn't the man I really want to identify with. It seems certainly that Simon could have been a better host. It seems like he could have done a little better for his guest this day. And the question does beg an answer. Had it been a different person, would he have treated the person a little better? Would he have washed his feet? Would he have kissed him? Would he have anointed his head? We don't know that either. But it seems like Jesus points out that he could have done better. Simon does not rebut that. Simon simply takes that in. Well, let's look at the sinful woman. <clears throat> who was this sinful woman? Well, in in in, uh, in just straight terms, we don't know. We just know it was a woman of the city who was sinful. Now, people that like to speculate and, and do things like that like to think about this person as Mary Magdalene. But the Bible doesn't say it's Mary Magdalene. So we don't know. All we know is this was a sin, sinful woman. And generally speaking, when the Bible speaks of sinful women in the Bible, it's usually a harlot, usually a prostitute, somebody that's steeped in immorality of some point, uh, in some some way, shape, or form. Whatever the case may be, it seems she had a regretful life. Likely she was unloved. She was abused. Abused. Likely she loathed herself on a daily basis. But somehow she was attracted to Jesus and decided to, uninvited that day, go into Simon's house to find Jesus. We look at her actions. We look at the perfume that she poured on his feet. We don't know where that perfume came from. Was it payment for services? Uh, was it her livelihood? Uh, we don't know that. Um, but whatever the case may be, she poured it on feet. Now, if you wanted something to stick around for a while, would you pour it on feet? No, you wouldn't. In that culture, probably a mile down the road, the lotion was worn off, the perfume was gone, and the feet were again dusty and stinky. But she poured it on his feet. There's many things that we'd like to know and we don't. Why was this woman involved in the lifestyle that she was? What was her story? What did she know about Jesus that caused her to do this? We don't know these things. But it is reasonable to conclude from this passage of Scripture that these actions that this woman took this day came from a heart of brokenness and sincerity. And again, we're going on strict appearance. Now, Jesus had something to say about that a little later on, but by appearance it would seem that way. This, of course, repulsed Simon. The situation repulsed him, and he had some less than charitable Thoughts go through his head. And so Jesus, let's talk about Jesus here just a little bit before we move on. Jesus, for whatever reason, obliged Simon that day to come to his house. Now, the Pharisees were not his friends. He knew that. Every chance they they got, they tried to trip him up. They tried to catch him in his words. They dogged him. They were not his friends. But when this Pharisee named Simon said, Jesus, would you come to my house to eat? He took him up on it. He went to him, went with him. He knew that he might be walking into a trap that day, but Jesus accepted the invitation. Jesus also knew the sincerity of the woman. He understood Simon's thought better than Simon probably did himself. And when Simon had these uncharitable thoughts going through his head about this woman and Jesus that day, Jesus just turned and said, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And that's the title of today's message, lest I forget. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon, Simon could have said, I don't want to hear it. He could have ignored him. But Jesus politely asked, and Simon politely said, all right, say on. So that brings us to the parable. One of the shortest parables we have in the Gospels, a couple of verses, But in this parable, we have some debtors and we have a creditor. The two debtors owe the creditor. They both owe him something. But the one owes significantly more than the other. So the amounts were extremely different. We're going from 50 pennies to 500. A lot of difference. But the predicament is the same. Neither one could pay the creditor. What did the creditor do? Did the creditors say, well, you know, I'll knock off, I'll knock off 75%. You see if you can come up with the rest of it. No, he didn't. It says he frankly forgave them both. Both of them had that debt erased. Based on the simple fact that from the story, neither could pay the debt. The debt could not be paid. I don't know if you've ever experienced a debt forgiven. I have never experienced a debt forgiven necessarily, but there was a time in my life that uh, I had a lot of debt, and I had several creditors. And early in my career, um, things got really, really tight, and I had to go to my creditors and say, "I have a problem. I can't pay what I owe. I can't even make the payment." Now, those two creditors, in particular, took two different approaches. The one said, "Well," We want to see you succeed, so we're going to drop your interest rate by a percent. That should help out. So you're going to drop it by a percent, and you you can just pay the interest until you get on your feet. The other one said, well, this is a problem. It is my money. Um, We'll compound the interest until you can get it paid. In other words, we'll just make it a little worse than what it is now. Now, eventually, I got myself worked out of that spot. But who do you think I have the softest spot in my heart for? I don't even need to answer that, do I? You know the answer. This is an important lesson that runs all through life. When someone is nice to you and does something for you that you do not deserve and does it out of the goodness of his heart, you will love that person. You just will. But there's a question here. What happened to the debt when it was forgiven? Did it just go away? Just poof. It just went away. It did not. The creditor had to absorb the debt. He had to take it. He forgave it. They were scot-free. But the debt was still there, and he paid the debt. He had to pay that. The lesson in this parable, though short, is simple and clear. The one that has the largest debt will love the creditor the most. So now what's the point? And this is by far the the longest point. And I had a hard time bringing my thoughts together on this particular one. But we're just going to kind of just run with this and, and see if we can figure some things out here. So as we read this story, and we have talked about it, In your heart of hearts, who do you identify with? Where do you put yourself in this story? Are you Jesus? Well, no, we're not Jesus. Are you the woman? Or are you Simon? And I know in each of our hearts we can answer that question. We know where we fit in this story, don't we? We know that. And we may as well just put it out there. Most of us would have to identify with Simon. We would have to. We're the religious man, the man that has not drunk deeply from the dregs of the sinful world around us. We are people that are repulsed by sinfulness, or we should be. The sinful woman, we don't really love that much. or We we struggle with it, maybe. And perhaps we question why Jesus would permit her to do such a thing. But this also begs a question. Was Jesus saying that Simon would have been far better off if he would have made a lap through the world? If he would have experienced the immorality of this woman? If he would have went to her parties? If he would have, if he could understand from experience the emptiness that this woman experienced? So he could love Jesus more. Is that what Jesus desires? That each of us understands through experience the Abysmal situation of a life of sin. Well, let's go back to the parable for one question, or maybe one detail that we easily miss. I've alluded to it, but it's easily missed. The point is not the amount of debt. The point is the inability to pay. That's the point of the the parable. I will remember when I was 10 years old or so, I was riding with my grandpa we were unloading Sally's wagons, fill and silo. And there had there was this corner we came around to pull up to the blower there. And um, it was kind of a tight corner, and when we backed out of it to get out of there and go go to uh return the empty box to be filled, you had to do it just right and you if you didn't do it right you'd hit the blower. I can't remember the nuances and that doesn't matter, but here's what I, here's what I do remember. My grandpa said that day, he, he missed that blower by a half an inch, whatever it was. And he said to me, he said, Dwight, he said, an inch is, a, is as good as a mile when it's a miss. And I've never forgotten that. I've thought of that many times. It doesn't matter when it's a miss, whether you intend to hit it or whether you intend not to hit it. If, the, if you didn't hit it, it doesn't matter if you missed it by a half an inch, Or you missed it by a country mile. You missed. That's the point. You missed. Think of it this way. If you're late for your flight, does it matter if you're one minute late or an hour late? At the end of the day, you missed your flight. It doesn't matter. You missed it. And we could go on and on with different illustrations like that. You know, likely the story is more dramatic. It is likely more interesting with the longer version, but the ultimate outcome is still the same. You're late or you missed. One of the two. It it doesn't matter. Now, it's important that the subtle point of this parable is that our natural focus tends to be on the wrong point. It is the size of the debt rather than the inability to pay. And Jesus is trying to help us focus on that inability to pay. So obviously, the man that owes 50 pennies should not feel smug or like he has one up on the person that owes the 500. But it is our inclination to feel that way. It is our inclination. Another pressing question. Christ does imply here that those who are forgiven much will likely have a deeper love for him. So what do we make of this? Again, it's a question. What do I What do I make of that? Should I be envious? Should I somehow covet the person's experience that has gone through the dregs of the world and came out with Jesus uh, on the other side? There's another universal truth here that I'd like to just throw out there. We will always have a deep appreciation for what is versus what could have been if what could have been would have been a very, very nasty thing, okay? Like, if you're going through Chicago, just take an illustration, and you're in that, you know how that is, cars everywhere, boom, 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 weaving in and out, there's always one or two that are going 120 miles an hour, You, you get the picture, and you almost wrecked, almost, you almost, it came so close. Just remember that feeling you had that uh, that when it didn't happen, the, the relief. But now would you have a better appreciation in some way if you would have wrecked? Well, the, the, the point of it is our appreciation is always heightened whenever we go through a troublesome time we we achieve a goal, and we look back and we say, "Wow, that that was really something else." I'm, I'm I don't know if I'm making my point here right, but most of us here I don't know I don't know I don't know your financial situations, but I keep going back to this because that's kind of the situation Jesus brings to the fore here. But let's say you have worked hard for a living, you have worked hard, you have squeaked through, and finally you get that house paid for, or whatever you've been working for. The the, the feeling of accomplishment, of of appreciation, of just that feeling of I'm so glad I'm here versus the person that was born with a proverbial silver spoon in the mouth, never worked a day in his life, and by the age 35 he has a, a multimillion dollar house that is paid for. He doesn't appreciate it, not the way he could because he has not worked for that. So this is the universal truth here. You know, Simon, could Simon, could he, could he have the same love as this harlot for Jesus? Is Or is it impossible? Well, should we resign ourselves that we will never ever be able to have a real and deep relational experience with Jesus? Let's probe a little deeper. Simon's problem, air quotes, was that he had been handed so much and he had been shielded from so much in his life that he found it very difficult to empathize or understand the situation of a person that did not have the same advantages. And thus he looked at the woman with disgust. And Paul talks about this. He talks about it in Romans. He said, what advantage does the Jew have over the Gentile? He said, much every way. For unto them were given the oracles. This is, again, a universal truth. But the lesson here is, you and I must intentionally remember this fact. Our spiritual advantage, spiritually, is not a result of our good management. Must I repeat that? Our spiritual advantages are not a result of our good management. But this can be hard to do. It's easy to look at wrecked lives, poor choices, and be inclined to repulsion and disgust. But I'd like to challenge us something this morning. When we see that, when we see a train wreck, let's train those emotions to go to something of a heart of love and godly pity and care and a desire to help. Train ourselves to to, to work those emotions into a different channel. Let us also remember that we are ultimately, even though it's hard for us to understand this, we are ultimately in the same shoes as the worst drunkard or the worst prostitute. We cannot pay our debt, even though we only owe the proverbial 50 cents. Questions we could ask, which is worse? To commit adultery? To commit murder? To be a prostitute? Or to come to church every Sunday but live in unchecked indulgence in secret sin? to have an uncontrolled anger problem, or perhaps a heart of greed that expresses itself on any given occasion, or jealousy, or covetousness. I ask you, which more? Which is more of a grief to the Father? Which one? Let us remember that in the case, both of these cases, It cost the father equally. And I've said that numbers of times. I'll say it again. The cost to the creditor was exactly the same. And we know the interpretation of the parable. We know that it cost our father the cruel death of Jesus to atone for our sins. Simon's sins and the woman's sin. So what are some concluding observations? Why does the sinner saved from the depths of sin, tend to have an advantage in his experience and his love. That's pretty much what the takeaway is from this parable, isn't it? Here are some things I'd like you to reflect on, some conclusions I have come to. I hope they're sound. What a debauched sinner has been saved from is obvious and it is tangible. If a person is saved from a life of prostitution... He's saved from a life of prostitution. There is a great change that's taken place in this person's life. If he is saved from the life of a drunkard, there is a great change takes place in his life. Like, even the worst drunkard, you could probably go out and say, can you live like you and be a Christian? And he'd probably say, no, no you can't. He understands where he's at. He totally gets it. He understands he is living a life that is displeasing to his father, displeasing to society. He can get a hold of that and we can too. However, when this person does find Jesus and he comes in and he pours that alabaster box of ointment on the feet, he can't completely dismiss or ignore the consequences of for that life that he has lived in the past. That cannot be completely avoided. If he was a smoker, he may well have COPD. If he was immoral, he may well have multiple children to multiple wives. He may have to deal with an unfaithful spouse. But here's the thing. His peace with God trumps these earthly issues that he must deal with, and he finds it meaningful to have that relationship with God because in his case, a shallow relationship with God will not work. It will not see him through. He needs to know God and know him well to conquer those that life of sin and live with probably the inevitable issues that have come as a consequence of that sin. So his his love is naturally strong. It is deep and meaningful. Now let us consider a person... In Simon's shoes and why he perhaps struggles on the other hand. Let's face it, many Christian ideals and lifestyle choices are decided for us as children. They are. Wise and godly parents will always shield their children from things that are not becoming. They'll shield them from things like movies and worthless reading material. They will teach them good morals. They will dress them even in a becoming way. They will teach them the value of work and stewardship. And they will teach them the reasons, hopefully the reasons, to, to eschew excess and riotous living. And that's completely appropriate. That's biblical. What else does it mean to bring up children in the nurture, of the, in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? We would consider it a dereliction of duty if parents would do otherwise. However, and here lies the crux of the matter, it can happen, and in Simon's case it may have happened, in our cases it can happen, that we pass on a pristine lifestyle and we fail to pass on the spirituality that should go with it. That's very, very, very possible. So with this challenge... We can come to what we call the age of accountability, and it could be for some of us that our experience of accepting Christ as we call it, experiencing baptism, church membership, is simply a rite of passage without no heart change. Nothing ever happened to the heart, it was just simply a rite of passage. We knew, we know in our hearts that a motivation for this is simply because it's what's expected, rather than recognizing that even though I only owe 50 cents, I still owe 50 cents. And we're we're smart enough, quote, quote again, to understand the advantages of living in our culture. We understand the perks that come with it, the perks of being a member of the church. There's even financial perks to it. It's even a way to procure a good wife there's many reasons a person could join a church and experience baptism and never have his heart changed. As I told the instruction class Wednesday evening we we were talking a little bit about the uh, our church discipline. I said likely you could do everything in that church discipline and still not know Christ. It's very likely you could. A person may never really experience a conversion if he does not know Jesus. He's easily entangled in things that do not lend itself to growing in faith and loving and knowing Jesus more. Because after all, he never did know Jesus, and he still doesn't know Jesus. And so thus, you have the life of hypocrisy that my friend way back at that wedding said, He has seen too many people experience nothing but hypocrisy. And in his experience, he wanted to label everyone that way. Now, I'm going to tell you the rest of that story because you need to know it. Here's why he labeled everybody that way. He himself was living that life. Several months ago, it came to light that he had been living a double life on his wife for years, years, and going to church And sitting there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Why wouldn't he think everybody else is like that? It's sad, but it's true. Now the good news is that man has found the Lord and praise God for that. But I'd just like to give you some telltale signs of how we can know if our relationship with Jesus is very shallow, if we've never had our hearts truly changed by the Lord, There's generally some telltale signs that we can look at. Not always. Not all of these exude themselves all the time. But generally speaking, and I can speak from too much experience, this is how it comes down. Generally, a person like this has this constant draw to the pleasures of the world, whatever they may be. Things like going to church, attending, plugging in with the people of God is a drag to him. He needs more excitement and thus the pleasure of the world, constantly. He can't keep himself away from it. Generally speaking, a person like this will conform to the bare minimum of the church standard and cultural norms just to fit in. And even he chafes at that. Generally speaking, a person like this, his devotional and prayer life is lacking or non-existent. It's dry and it's boring. Or a person can choose the other path like Simon in today's story. He can choose to live well within expect, expected cultural standards and become very critical of those who do not. Generally speaking, these people will have a God other than Jesus. Although they'd never admit it, it will either be the God of self-righteousness, money, business, pleasure, popularity, Any tangible thing they can get their hands on, like a truck or a farm or a business or a house, any of those things become the gods of these people. We all need something to serve. And if you're not serving Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you will serve something. And generally, that's where you will go. And it is a guarantee. This is a guarantee. These people will not have a testimony for the Lord. They're uncomfortable speaking about God. And the reason they are is because they don't know God. They never have. They've never known God, and thus they have no testimony. Unfortunately, sometimes our Christian culture lends itself to a paradigm that we look the other way as long as the outward is sort of conformed just enough. As long as that outward just looks just good enough. We'll leave what is obvious heart problems a lie. We won't deal with it because the the expected norms are just so, they're just so inside the expected norms. And thus there can be deep spiritual issues that can even at times be recognized, but they go unchallenged and unaddressed because we worry again ourselves with a tangible. We want the tangible. We we want to dwell on the observable, the measurable, and avoid the real issues of the heart where the real issues lie. Now contrast this to the hardcore sinner. There's no question. Nobody is kidding anybody. When we have a a sinful condition that is easily recognized, this too is tangible. And even the sinner can understand that. Is Jesus calling us today to upend our culture to deepen our love? Should we just pull the plug? Should we send our children to public schools? Should we quit teaching and promoting meaningful, tangible Christian disciplines? Should we just collect, just forget having a collective church standard? Just throw that all away. Is that what we should do? I'm going to say no. I'm going to suggest today that Jesus is calling us rather to upend our lethargy, to recognize ourselves for who we really are, and to love him with a harlot's love, because it's only his grace that has saved us from that. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus seldom condemns the Pharisees' actions. In fact, in Matthew, he said, these you should have done, but not left these undone. What Jesus in essence is saying is, I'm begging with you, let your heart catch up to your culture and practices. Let your heart catch up with that. Then you'll really have something. I do not believe Jesus today stands in condemnation of biblical-based culture. But it has to be practiced by born-again people. It has to be. It must be. Or it will just be, as my friend said, it will be a hypocrisy and a detriment because it gives a feeling of righteousness, but true righteousness is totally missing. Totally. So I don't know how you identify now. Do you still identify with Simon? Does what I describe as a modern-day Simon resonate with you? Are you serving another God? And you know that. You know that. Do you know in your heart that you chafe at the cultural pressures? You you despise it. They seem constraining to you. You you fail to see the godliness in that, and you chafe at it. Or maybe you find yourself with a smug on self-righteousness, and you put your trust in that. Or maybe you just cannot shake that incessant pool of worldliness, that in its lure, it just constantly dogs you, and you, you say, God, I'm going to do better. And you can't do better. Because your heart has never been changed. You can't do better. I would suggest to you tonight today that Jesus' words are the same to us today as they were then. Jesus is saying, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And I'm going to make a bold statement. I believe we can all enjoy the relationship of this woman, which is Jesus' love and approval. I believe we can all enjoy that in our culture. But it will only be when we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in total surrender to him. We understand our need of forgiveness of that 50 pennies. And we know we cannot pay it. And when we do that, Jesus' words will be exactly the same as they were to that woman. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace.